Well, hello there, and welcome to this second episode in this podcast series on the ethics of technology. To quickly bring you up to speed, this podcast series features a set of conversations, discussions between myself, John Danaher, and my colleague Sven Nyholm about the ethics of technology. The series is loosely based on Sven's 2023 book, This is Technology Ethics, which is intended as a general introduction to some of the key concepts, debates, themes, and arguments in the ethics of technology. Um, if you're interested in the book, you can purchase a discounted copy as a, as a tie-in with this podcast series by going to the publisher's website and using the code TECH20. The details are in the post that accompanies this podcast or on the podcast website, which is technologyethicspod.com. In this episode, myself and Sven will be discussing questions around the methods of technology ethics with a particular focus on a case study involving the ethics of self-driving cars. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And now I'm just going to hand over to the discussion between myself and Sven. Okay, all right. So today we're going to turn our attention to the third chapter in your book. That's roughly the starting point for our discussion, which is an interesting reflection on methods in technology ethics. And I guess to some extent methods in philosophy more generally. And one of the things that you start with is a comment, which I think many, many philosophers and perhaps even many people from like, let's say, humanities or analytic disciplines can sympathize which with which is that we're not necessarily very good or clear on what our methods are or what we're doing when we're engaging in let's say philosophical inquiry analogously since i come from a law school you know what lawyers do when they research things i don't know if they're very good at articulating what it is that they're doing whereas if you're a scientist particularly let's say a social scientist or a psychologist, you have a very kind of clear conception of what your methods are. So with that in mind, I guess there's a couple of questions we could start off with. Maybe the first one is, is the more general question which we'll ask, which is, you know, why do you think it is that philosophers in particular struggle with methods? Like, why, why do we struggle to articulate it, what it is that we're trying to do when we're engaging in a philosophical or ethical inquiry? Yeah, I mean, as you said, uh, in some other fields, uh, I mean, the scientific papers tend to have a methods section where they describe uh, how they went about uh, running their experiments, and then there's a sort of findings of the experiments and a discussion of those. Uh, philosophy papers very seldomly have a, a methods section. Uh, however, yeah, when we have to write uh, grant applications to try to get funding to do research projects, then usually we use the same forms as everyone else. And then we're typically then uh, invited to speak both about the content, but also about the method and a lot of philosophers sort of panic. Uh, and uh, yeah, so why is this important to think about and what should one think about it? Uh, well, I mean, some philosophers say that actually a lot of what we do is to reflect on how best so a lot of it is sort of an implicit methodological reflection on how should we approach ethical topics. I mean, in our case, we're talking about technology ethics, but in general, like, you know, philosophers of language study different aspects of language or logic or whatever it might be. 
they tend to uh, partly discuss sort of the meta questions as philosophers call them. Okay, what are we doing when we're thinking about these things? You know, what, what are these questions about in the first place? How can one go about discussing them? And um, yeah, and so, I mean, we will get into different methods in, in a moment, but it, it seems important just because, I mean, partly just because our colleagues in other fields will say, hey, we describe our methods very clearly what about you? What are your methods and why should you get the research grants that uh, people from our own fields are applying for, people from other fields are applying for? If you can't even explain what you're doing and how you're doing it, then, you know, how should we be wasting the grant money on you? So, it's, I mean, it's partly, obviously, it's we've those who are interested in philosophy, philosophical questions are interested in, okay, how should one do philosophy? But, it's all, you know, it's also a matter of in a certain sense, to some extent, I guess, justifying ourselves to others and explaining what we're doing. And as we're doing so, getting clear uh, for ourselves about, you know, what we're doing. And maybe maybe not we're not using all the methods we, that are at our disposal. I mean, maybe we've been, been too narrow-minded uh, in our thinking about this. I mean, we will get back to that a bit later, I think. But some philosophers say, hey, why are we just sitting in our armchairs reflecting? Why don't we also also sometimes sort of roll up our sleeves and and do some empirical work. Yeah, so this is yeah. the reasons I mean, to reflect the methods. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's kind of two ways of thinking about why it is that maybe philosophers struggle with, with methods. Uh, one, which I guess is less flattering to philosophers, is just that they're not, ironically, perhaps not particularly self-reflective about what it is they themselves are doing, that, as you can mentioned or alluded to, the philosophical method is sometimes described as, um, you know, the method from the armchair. Uh, Daniel Dennett has a term, which I don't think has ever caught on, where he refers to most philosophy as a kind of naive auto-anthropology, which is, mm. I mean, actually a reasonably sophisticated way of framing what it is that philosophers do, I suppose. But it's like, we're engaging in a kind of anthropological inquiry into you know, what it is that humans think or believe about the world except we're doing it on ourselves. So it's auto-anthropology. So we're just reflecting on our own intuitions and beliefs about the world and saying, oh yeah, that seems you know intuitively coherent and attractive and that doesn't. So I, that seems logically consistent, that doesn't. And we can work out propositions and theories from there. And I mean, as is implicit in, in the term that Dennett uses, it's naive auto-anthropology because we're not maybe incredibly perceptive or reflective on the potential biases or shortcomings of our own perspective on things. So that's one way of, I suppose, parsing it. The other way it might be a little bit more flattering or um, supportive of the, the philosophical enterprise, which is just that in some sense, philosophy is, is too abstract a discipline to have a kind of coherent set of methods. And this is an idea that you find sometimes in philosophy of science or if, intellectual history that a lot of the applied sciences can be viewed in some sense as things that have um, emerged from or broken away from philosophy. So what we call physics and natural sciences nowadays was once upon a time called natural philosophy. And, you know, I mean, historically, that was not something that had necessarily a coherent methodology. If you ask like natural philosophers in the Middle Ages, what they were doing, they were very closely interpreting Aristotelian texts or something like this and making sure that they could develop sort of coherent views from them and work out all the kind of logical ramifications of them. Whereas I suppose around the 1600s, it changed into something that became more 
mathematical and more empirical in nature. And then it became its own kind of independent inquiry. Maybe you could argue something similar is true of psychology. You know, the early psychologists were kind of philosophers like David Hume or something. And Adam Smith could be viewed as kind of psychologists in a sense, reflecting on human beliefs and practices and developing this kind of empiricist view. And then once they kind of conceptualize more clearly what it is that they're trying to, you know, what they're inquiring into and ways of establishing truth or clar getting gaining clarity in the, that type of inquiry, it becomes a science of its own with a more coherent set of methods. I don't know if you have any views on that, those sort of two interpretations of philosophy, the one more critical and the other a little bit more flattering to what it is that philosophers do. Yeah, I mean, maybe two thoughts. I mean, uh, uh, there is, of course, a tradition that sees sort of self-understanding as there's nothing wrong with it. And this is maybe the, the highest goal of philosophy, you know, know thyself. And that uh, uh, the idea that, you know, we would sort of be looking within and uh, reflecting on what, who we are and our own attitudes, etc. And uh, the, the, one school of philosophy sees that it's perfectly fine. That's something we should be doing. Others are, no, no, no. It should be about things outside of ourselves. And philosophy should not be about our personalities or temperaments or anything like that. It's, it should be about the world outside of human beings. And so I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe some of the people who had that latter attitude then are some of the people who branched off and, and created other disciplines, maybe who didn't think that self-understanding should be or is one of the, 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 the highest goals of philosophy, so to speak. But uh, another thought I had as you were speaking that there is that even the, you know, the, the topics that have remained within philosophy and that haven't sort of branched off and become sciences of their own. I mean, there's quite a range of different kinds of topics. Uh, I mean, just thinking about the, the department I'm working in uh, at uh, the Ludwig uh, Maximilian University uh, in Germany, in Munich. Uh, I mean, we have quite a range of topics that people are working on. Of course, there's ancient philosophy and the history of philosophy, uh, but uh, we have a center for mathematical philosophy, people doing like, you know, studying philosophy using very formal methods, uh, thinking in terms of you know how to i mean they're not exactly translating philosophical the problems into mathematics but some of the things they're doing can from the outside seem like that we have people working on the philosophy of mind who do to do that in a way that's quite empirical uh maybe from the outside would look a, a little bit similar to social psychology and uh, certainly sort of uh there's not a sharp uh, boundary between sort of empirical psychology and what some of my colleagues are doing in philosophy of mind and then we have different you know parts of ethics and and now also uh, with me, AI ethics. So uh, even just within one department, uh, you know, at a university with, with, with lots of philosophers, there might be a ton of different things people are doing and different methods may make sense. I mean, if you're studying the history of philosophy, part of what you're doing, of course, is looking at texts, analyzing them and trying to relate them to what came before and what came after. And so, you know, you, you're, you're, you're working as a historian does. I mean, historians work with texts and other materials from the past, but... If you're interested in some of those other topics that, I mean, people in my and other departments are working on, then maybe textual study is not the main thing you want to do. So, so yeah, even within philosophy, there's quite a range of methods. And so that makes it very hard to say that, well, this is the one method that you use when you study philosophy. Even if you stick with ethics, which is our topic, uh, or even technology ethics, as we will see, uh, there's a lot of different things people are doing. Uh, I mean, it does raise the question uh, that I myself I'm quite interested in and I think we will get back to namely like you know is one method better than other methods or you know should we should we have these kind of big departments where we have lots of different people working on different 
you know, problems using different methods, and might that be sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 should we take the kind of pluralistic stance, or, or are there some methods that, you know, people shouldn't be using, and that maybe we should hire more people using one type of method, and and hire fewer people using another type of method. So uh, some of the discussions in technology ethics, I think, does, you know, give off that impression that there are some methods that be better or less left unused, so to speak. But uh, as I will see, I, I myself take a kind of a more pluralistic stance. And I think that, you know, there, it's interesting to have people working on similar uh, issues using different methods. And then one can sort of zoom out and reflect on, you know, what, what do we learn uh, from the, the findings from these people uh, using these different methods yeah i mean there's a danger here that i i personally anyway i could probably riff or talk about this topic for a very long time and uh, we might never get back to the particular case studies or questions around technology ethics but i mean i have a couple of, of reflections comments one of which i think would be helpful as well which has to do with the distinction between a methodology and a set of methods, right? Because this is something that, at least when you're training in research students, you often uh, discuss this distinction. You can have a method section in a paper, but then you have a methodology section in a grant application sometimes. And some people have a very clear understanding of the distinction between these two things and other people maybe less clear. I'll give you my view on it, which I think is roughly the mainstream view, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, I've been sort of adopting an idiosyncratic perspective on this for a long time. But when my view on it is that a methodology is like a a general sort of theory of how you acquire knowledge in a relevant domain. So you'll have like an empirical methodology. So within that, there's this presumption or assumption that engaging in some sort of empirical inquiry, you know, an experiment, an observation of the natural world, collecting data about the natural world, that's the way to acquire true beliefs or, or aim at true propositions in that relevant domain of inquiry. Whereas then a set of methods are the, the tools or things you actually do to acquire knowledge in the relevant domain. So if you adopt an empirical methodology, there's lots of empirical methods. You can survey, you can observe, you can experiment, uh, you can, I don't know, um, have some sort of sensors or equipment that collect different forms of data in different modalities. So there's lots of different ways of, of going about it. Uh, lots of different methods you can follow that would qualify as being empirical, but the general presumption that an empirical inquiry is the correct way to acquire knowledge in the domain is the methodology. How do you think about that distinction? Uh, yeah, no, as you were talking there, it struck me that I'm, I'm not altogether clear, but I mean, I guess I would have thought that methodology is sort of the I don't know, reflection on kind of what method one should be using. And uh, if I make methodological claims, I would be sort of making claims about maybe how, you know, which methods are better than others and why would one use certain methods uh, for, for attacking certain kinds of questions and, and others maybe methods for other questions. Whereas the, the, in describing your method is just saying, okay, here's what I, I'm going to do and maybe why I think it's good. But so, yeah, so I, I think those two things maybe are not super sharply distinguished. And uh, that's definitely a lot of colleagues, I think, are using method and methodology in a sort of loose way that it's not clear that there's a difference. But again, I think I have been thinking about as a methodology as more, slightly more reflective and, you know, the, the, the why would one use a certain methods, whereas methods, describing your method is more saying like what you will do and how you will, will do it. Uh, I mean, a lot of people in philosophy 
they will tend to say, well, going back to this issue of writing grant applications, okay, you know, I mean, there's only one method, really. Uh, and actually, I think uh, in one of Scanlon's books, it says something like this. Well, in philosophy, the only method is reflective equilibrium. Uh, it's to seek uh, reflective equilibrium, and like, you know, that's your method, uh, which, I mean, it, for those who maybe don't know what that means, it just means that, you know, you're working both with very general conceptions and ideas about things and thinking about more specific cases and maybe uh, examples and maybe thought experiments uh, and, have, and making judgments about those particular issues and then trying to sort of uh, find some sort of balance between your more uh, specific uh, convictions about things, about a certain topic, and your more uh, general uh, principles that you may be uh, drawn to accepting. And so sometimes you might think that you are, let's say, utilitarian, who thinks that we should always just try to maximize overall good. But then you might think about what that implies about specific cases. Does it mean, for example, that you should torture one person in order to save 100 people? If you think that, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, some people say, yes, go ahead and torture away. But if you think not, then that might be a reason to think that, okay, so maybe utilitarianism describes some part of morality, but not uh, like the, all of it. There, there maybe should be certain constraints or something like that. So you might adjust your more general ideas about ethics in light of those reflections you had about that particular case with the torture. Uh, or you might actually think that, well, actually, when I think about lots of other examples, it fits very nicely with the utilitarian idea of maximizing overall good. And so maybe I should revise my judgment about that particular case. Maybe even though it's counterintuitive, perhaps I should say that, well, if I can save 100 people by torturing one person, perhaps I should do it. So moving back and forth between more specific ideas and more general ideas and trying to find some kind of balance is sometimes uh, labeled the reflective equilibrium method uh and so that's what a lot of people say when they say you know, what, you know what's your method well i like most philosophers i use the reflective equilibrium method but on the other hand since this is what a lot of philosophers say it's not very informative and in addition to that it seems to me that actually and uh specifically if we look at a case like the one we're going to talk about the ethics of self-driving car people are actually doing different things there are different methods that people are doing in order to arrive at conclusions and so it doesn't seem quite right to say, as I think Scanlon, if I remember him correctly, I, mean, I hope I'm not misquoting, that this is really the only method that philosophers really do use. I, I, I beg to differ. I think people are doing different things in, in order to reach their conclusions. And that seems to me to suggest that there are different methods when people study things such as technology ethics more generally, or something like the ethics of self-driving car more specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not overly familiar with Thomas Scanlon's work, so I can't say for sure whether he's at it. But I do know that David Boonen, in one of his books, uh, The Ethics of Abortion, essentially makes this claim, at least in, in, the, in the world of ethics, he claims that the only game in town, the only method in town is the method of reflective equilibrium. I can say that with confidence because I've quoted that passage from that book on many occasions and indeed in several grant applications over the years. So I feel I feel confident about that one. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think part of the problem maybe with the reflective equilibrium as an idea, and I, I believe you are right in saying that most philosophers will claim that they're adopting something like that method. I think it's particularly true in ethics and moral theory, uh, maybe less true in some other domains, like the philosophy of mind or something is probably more nowadays more integrated into as you say, social psychology or neuroscience and things like that. But um, one of the issues with it, I guess, is that 
it seems like quite an abstract concept or idea of achieving refractive equilibrium. And it sounds nice and, and it's very hard for anyone to sort of disagree with it, like which is like, yeah, of course we're trying to, you know, ensure that our judgments or beliefs are harmonious in some sense uh, across a full spectrum of generality and specificity. And one of the things that I wanted to, to put to you, which I think will tie into this discussion of self-driving cars, is that to me, it seems like reflective equilibrium is a goal. Like it's, it's an outcome that you want to achieve, but it doesn't necessarily prescribe any particular method. I mean, I think a lot of philosophers interpret it to mean something like a, you know, a, a kind of, as you described it, kind of jumping back and forth, say a general normative. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's back. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So I think I think many philosophers will interpret it to mean something like a going between a general like normative principle or theory and a specific set of cases and looking at counter examples and counter analogies or whatever. But actually, there's many different ways you could go about trying to attain reflective equilibrium. You might investigate particular cases. You might investigate, you know, uh, social attitudes or opinions. And you know, there's, there's different approaches you you could take to achieving. A reflective equilibrium and then i think this sort of does tie us in nicely to this case study that you have on on self-driving cars um before we discuss the different methods that one could adopt and have in fact been adopted by technology ethicists when it comes to uh, this topic of self-driving cars let's talk a bit about what that ethical question or challenge is correct me if i'm wrong there's basically two sort of ethical questions that need to be resolved with self-driving cars at least in your discussion of it in the book one is what you might call a a moral dilemma question which is you know imagine a, a self-driving car encounters some sort of accident type scenario where it has to choose between i don't know crashing into a wall and potentially killing the driver and colliding with a bunch of pedestrians and killing them or some variation on that theme where you know has to choose between two outcomes that neither of them is necessarily overly desirable. That each has their problems. What should it do in that context? How, what should it be programmed to do? How should it make that choice? That's one ethical conundrum that needs to be resolved, or does it need to be resolved? But let's let's pretend it does need to be resolved. And then the other one is who is responsible for what the car does in those circumstances? Is it the person sitting in in the vehicle who may or may not have much control over what the vehicle does is it the company that programs it is it the company that leases it out who knows so there's all these sorts of questions to, to raise about responsibility and this will become a major theme in, in later episodes of this podcast anyway and a whole separate discussion around responsibility but is that right roughly those two questions that's the focus of this case study uh, well well yes absolutely i mean uh, when we when we speak about uh, methods uh, in relation to the third chapter of, of the book, then it's primarily the first question, you know, how should self-driving cars behave basically in risky situations? And the idea there is that, uh, well, driving uh, in general is risky unless you drive extremely slowly, 
and uh, I don't know, there's like a thick rubber layer outside of your car or something like that, then, then uh, and, and no one does drive super slowly and no one has that kind of protected layer. It, it is going to be risky because you know, there's a heavy object that's moving fairly in a fast way among other heavy objects, uh, you know, in different kinds of conditions. And so it's it's just inherently risky to, to, to drive cars or to, to have cars that are being driven by themselves, so to speak, being self-driving. So how should they behave and how should they deal with risky scenarios? Uh, that's the maybe the, the, the main question that's been discussed and the ethics of self-driving car and cars. And, and as you say, the other main question being like, okay, so when something does happen, uh, when some of those risks are materialized and then there's an accident of some sort, you know, who should be held responsible? But it's in a certain sense, well, actually, maybe I should take that back. I mean, actually, when it comes to both of these questions, there have been a remarkable variety in the, in the ways that people have approached those questions. There are other questions that are related to the ethics of self-driving cars uh, that are also interesting. Uh, for example, should we be using self-driving cars in the first place? Uh, or uh, should there always be someone behind the wheel? Uh, should people have the freedom to choose uh, whether or not they want to use self-driving cars uh, or just continue driving regular cars? Could there ever be, an, a, be a point where people should be forbidden from driving regular cars when everyone should be sort of obligated to either not drive at all or use self-driving cars? So that, I mean, there are other questions but uh, the, the the two questions, as you say, that have really been discussed is the, the question about how to, they should behave in dangerous, sometimes dilemma-like scenarios. You know, uh, should they save fewer or more people or what should they do? Should they always protect the person in the car, et cetera? How should they deal with risk? On the other hand, then also, you know, how, okay, how, how, who's responsible when something does happen? Uh, and as I said, it's really... Uh, interesting part of this because if you look at the the literature which which I've done because at one point I wrote sort of a review article for uh, the journal called Philosophy Compass that sort of asked people to write kind of an overview. I, one of the things I just noticed as I was doing that is just a variety of ways in which people have approached this question. I think it has to do with something that we talked about briefly in the in the previous episode, namely that when it comes to the ethics of technology, it's not only philosophers. Uh, who are interested in this uh, aspect of ethics? It's also people coming from things like fields like uh, computer science. Uh, I mean, people like yourself that come from a legal background, uh, or, or people who actually are psychologists who are interested in moral thinking, as we will see also, and or behavioral economists. And so there's just a kind of wide variety of people who have discussed this topic, and that may be part of what accounts for the fact that. There have been a lot of different methods that people have used. And so if everyone was trained in a certain philosophical uh, tradition, let's say continental philosophy or analytic philosophy, uh, I mean, of the people who are discussing this topic, then perhaps there would be a narrower range of methods. But people from various different traditions and fields are looking at this topic, and hence there has been quite the variety of, of methods. So that's one of the reasons why I think that's a good case study when one wants to reflect on which methods can technology, technology ethicists use and which methods should they use. Yeah, as you say, I think it's a good case study for highlighting the methodological pluralism that is evident in the discipline of technology ethics. And I mean, maybe this is part of the reason why it is a kind of exciting and interesting domain of, of study and, and inquiry that diversity and plurality so let, let's actually just discuss some of these different methods people ways that people have tried to resolve those two ethical questions primarily the, the first uh, so the first one that you talk about in the book i hope i got the sequence of these correct but i think i um, have them right um is ethics by committee 
Uh, maybe you could uh, explain what you mean by that idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of came up with that uh, phrase uh, when I was writing about this. And so I don't know if that's a, a term that makes sense to people. But uh, the idea is that actually, look, if you look around at different contexts, uh, and we will we will discuss, I think, some one such context that you yourself were, invo you were involved with. Uh, I mean, here I'm working in Germany. This was one of the first countries that put together a bunch of experts and asked them to come up with a set of guidelines. Uh, you were involved with uh, an, an EU uh, project of the same, same kind, like, okay, experts, please give us guidelines about how self-driving cars should behave. Uh, I mean, actually, this is a small anecdote. I mean, uh, when I first started working on the ethics of self-driving cars, I was invited to two large car industry events where, you know, there were experts on different aspects of driving and also then autonomous driving and and the, I just noticed that there was a sort of a culture of expertise and so they asked me well you're the ethics expert why don't you tell us how our self-driving cars should be programmed to behave uh, and I said well you know I'm, we're, we're thinking about this I mean this is a new topic and they said well why don't you, you know why don't you sort of get together with some of your expert bodies and you know come up with a set of guidelines you can revise those later uh, but we you know we need some sort of uh, concrete suggestions about how these cars should behave uh, both in scenarios when there's maybe only small risks, but also in very risky scenarios. And so, so this, what I'm calling ethics by committee, is basically the idea of, okay, let's gather some experts, perhaps coming from different fields, perhaps all being ethicists, uh, perhaps partly coming from industry, uh, or perhaps engineers, et cetera, et cetera, and just put them in a room together, or maybe a conference hotel or something like that. Uh, I don't know how it was in your case and then uh, ask them at the end of a certain period to come up with a document with a set of guidelines. And, uh, you know, however those experts want to go about coming up with this guideline, it could be that, I mean, it would be pretty bad if one person just wrote them and the others just went off and went, did, went skiing or something like that. Presumably, the idea is that there should be some sort of discussion and some sort of compromise reach between different points of view. And in a certain ways, you can almost compared to this reflective equilibrium method that you know people with different perspectives should be you know balance their views against each other and find some sort of a balance or consensus amongst themselves and so uh, i mean i don't know how much uh, you can say about uh, what methods you were actually using when you were doing this but uh, you were definitely involved with uh, one of these uh, attempts to produce a document and indeed you did produce a document you and your co-authors and so uh and if I, I mean, I've read it a couple of times, but it was a while ago. And so if I remember, in addition to just kind of talking about the, the topic, there are also these sort of, I mean, almost like rules that you suggest, okay, in this sort of scenario, this is what should be done. Uh, people's, you know, age should or shouldn't matter. You know, there here are some of the problems that should be filled and here's how to go about doing it. And so how, maybe you could say something about your experience with that, because I mean, I'm curious personally. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, that experience in a minute, maybe just on a kind of general note or reflection on this idea of ethics by committee. I mean, one way of parsing it or thinking about it is that it's a kind of communitarian reflective equilibrium that you or you have a group of experts or people that you think might have knowledge that is relevant to resolving the ethical questions here. And you want them to reach some kind of consensus to come up with, here's what should happen, what what should be done. I think perhaps to, to philosophers or somebody from a philosophical background, that approach might seem very alien or not, certainly not overly 
familiar with what they would normally do. I mean, it's it's rare for philosophers to agree on anything. And the notion that you would like sit down at a philosophy conference and try to reach some sort of consensus view on things seems unlikely. Maybe there are historical examples of attempts to do that. I don't know, yeah, like... I think uh, there have been some cases where philosophers have gotten together and written sort of an opinion about abortion in America, for example. Uh, I think it was maybe in the 80s or 70s or maybe even 90s. And so that sort of thing happened. Yeah, I mean, I think, on I think... occasion, but very rarely. There, I mean, there is a tradition of philosophers being involved in you know, public policy making to some extent. I mean, Bernard Williams in the UK was heavily involved in policy making and like reform of, of laws around, I think, pornography, perhaps, and obscenity. But anyway, um, so there, there is that history. I, I was thinking more even like within the domain of philosophy itself, you could argue that something like the Vienna Circle was an attempt to reach some sort of consensus view on what philosophy is about and what the nature of philosophical truth is. But and well, There was also another, uh, yeah, there was another recent uh, case where a bunch of utilitarians got together to write a paper about uh, the repugnant conclusion which uh, maybe we don't have to get into the details of that, but that, that was seen as odd by a lot of people. They said, okay, so uh, we are a bunch of philosophers and here's what we believe about the reporting conclusion. A lot of people thought that that was a bad way of, of doing things in, in response to that paper. So it's the sort of, those are exceptions that prove the rule that people don't really typically do this, I think, at least not in philosophy journals, as was the case in that case. Uh, but uh, these kinds of documents, like the one that you helped to produce, are usually more produced, not for the sake of being, I mean, actually, I think you did publish something in a philosophy journal about this, but it was maybe reporting the results rather, uh, whereas the main point was to kind of to, to guide decision-making of the EU policymakers or something like that. In Germany, I think this document about self-driving cars was also supposed to guide uh, German policymaking. So, uh, the, the, I mean, the, the Bernard Williams uh, pornography thing, I mean, that was also about policy making so it, it would you know this would yeah. be the, the, the type of location uh in relation to which uh you know these kinds of ethics by committee m- methods would be used yeah i mean this is the, the point i was going to make was that since i do come from a legal background this kind of thing is much more familiar and, and you know the idea of coming up with a law reforms to the law consulting with groups stakeholders that are interested in this have an interest in the reform of the law experts who have something to say on it is a a very common approach so being involved in this european commission committee that i was involved in a couple years ago on i think the title of a report was something like the ethics of connected and autonomous vehicles something along those lines so it was coming up with specific policy recommendations as to you know what the law should be roughly on uh, on the kinds of harm that a self-driving vehicle should be entitled to cause or not cause, as the case may be, um, things around data and transparency and issues around responsibility and liability for outcomes, uh, among um, a couple of other the topics. So, like once one, thing, there's a few things I could say about that experience, and it may well have been the case that I signed a non-disclosure agreement about that as well which means that I'm like not permitted to reveal certain information. I, I mean, I can't remember, and I, I don't think it's that big a deal. I'm not going to say what particular people said in the discussion, so I, I think I'm probably not violating the terms of, of any uh, non-disclosure agreement. But that, that was something that was obviously started by the European Commission, that they wanted policy guidance on this. I think they wanted policy guidance on it because it was seemed to be attracting such significant 
media attention and public discussion or debate at the time. This was maybe back in when we started work in 2019, pre-COVID, and then we wrapped up sort of in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So maybe the impetus for it came in roughly sort of 2018, 2019. That was around the time actually that the moral machine experiment, which we will, I think, maybe talk about in a few minutes, was attracting a lot of notoriety and attention. That paper had just been published. And one of the authors on that paper was the leader of this committee that I was on. And they kind of viewed the rationale or purpose of the committee to resolve the kinds of ethical dilemma that were addressed in that uh, paper, that moral machine experiment. Again, choosing between you know who to harm or who not to harm in a dilemma type scenario. Um, so it kind of had a it had a mission in mind at the outset, and other people added in other, uh, different um, perspectives on it. You know, like there's interesting questions to be asked about, like you know, how did they form that expert group? Uh, if I remember correctly. I was actually approached by them. Maybe they like sent out an email asking me whether I'd wanted to apply to participate in this. And I believe probably lots of people received that invitation and they whittled the group down. Um, maybe you received that invitation. I yeah, know. no, no, I was going to say, because I, I was approached, but uh, someone else was selected because like they, they, if I remember correctly, they selected like one person per EU country. And, yeah, r- uh, roughly. I don't think they had like every EU country in the end because I, I think the committee only had 15 or 16 people on it, but they, they did explicitly want diversity in terms of coverage of member states. So that like that was one of their criteria for uh, membership. So the fact yeah. that I'm from Ireland and I'm right, like was the only person approached in Ireland just, would, would have helped. Yeah, so. no, because like in the Netherlands where I was working uh, at that time before I just recently moved to Germany, lots of people were, were working on the ethics of self-driving cars because it's sort of a hotspot for technology ethics. And so, uh, you know, a, a very... Uh, Capable and highly valued colleague of mine, uh, Filippo Santoni de Sio, was uh, just, I mean, uh, he was already doing great work, but he was also starting up a, a research project uh, funded by the Dutch government on the ethics of self-driving cars around that time. So he was, you know, a very good and obvious uh, choice. But yes, indeed, they they reached out to a bunch of people. And I, if I remember correctly, I was asked to write a little uh, sort of description of why I thought I, was, I would be a good you know, choice for this committee, apparently on that particular occasion. I was not selected. I mean, uh, I have been involved in other things like that. Uh, in indeed, uh, sometimes you know, where you're asking to motivate this. Other at other times, you're nominated by someone else uh, uh, who maybe has been on a similar committee bef- before, etc. So yeah, there are all sorts of different kinds of methods for choosing people. And then, uh, I mean, I think in in that particular case, and in, in your case, there were only academics. Is that is that right? Uh, because no, I'm, I'm saying this there, because uh, there, there are some other examples of this, uh, I mean, EU and other documents that have been produced both by academics and experts on this sort of the actual topic, but also industry people. And this has sometimes been the, one of the criticisms of this kind of method. Uh, I mean, on uh, on this report uh, or whatever I should call it, the untrustworthy AI uh, from the high level expert group on uh, artificial intelligence that came out, I mean, maybe three or four years, or maybe even less than that before the one that you were talking about. Uh, some of the members who were ethics experts complained that there were not enough of them, that there were too many industry people and not enough ethics experts. And they worried that this would lead to uh, the people from the industry would sort of like try to, you know, make the re- report industry friendly and uh, to make the industry appear as if 
they care about ethics while you know being kind of somewhat loose and uh, vague in uh, the, the ethical re- recommendations so that they would give themselves a lot of wiggle room at the same time appearing to care about ethics and and this the critic uh, Thomas Metzinger, uh, the one of those ex- ethics experts, called this ethics washing, trying to present you know uh, people working on a- AI as being more concerned with ethics than they really are. So I mean that that's just one of those types of criticisms that have come up, uh, at least against some of these uh, committees that have made ethical recommendations. I mean, if it's a, a b- bunch of experts that are not a member a members of the industry, that type of criticism may not work unless you know maybe you can show that they're all funded by in industry or something like that so how the you know how people are selected and also who exactly they are and what in interests they may be representing is going to be some of the things that critics of these kinds of committees and that method are going to be looking at yeah and i mean i think that's that's a fair criticism that the committee that i was on was not purely academic but was certainly majority academic i think there if i recall correctly there were two representatives of industry at it but one of them quit their job midway through the um midway through the work of the expert group to form a kind of independent consultancy on on vehicles so i mean it's certainly industry focused or industry background but not um by the end of it actually representing a specific uh car company i mean by contrast well i was once involved in a a work group for the OECD on transport. I think it's actually called the International Transport Federation. And that was very heavily industry-based. It was all the people from Uber and Toyota and uh, Ford and things like this. So, uh, you know, representatives of motor car companies from around the world were on that. And you, you can obviously certainly ask questions about ethics washing, as Thomas Metzinger did in that case, or, you know, industry capture. You're captured by the interests of the industry in that context. You know, the counter argument is that you know, what are these committees supposed to do? They're supposed to represent different stakeholders, different interests, different perspectives. And, you know, is it a mistake to exclude some voices or perspectives? But, you know, certainly the committee that I was on achieved some kinds of diversity and representativeness, but also didn't achieve others. You know, I mean, I think I think the European Union and European Commission have an, a formal rule about gender balance on committees. So it, I think. It has to be like a 60, you know, within a sort of 60, 40 split. It's either ideally 50, 50, but 60% uh, male, female or female male will be tolerated, but nothing beyond those, those boundaries. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that's the exact split, but that's something along those lines. I mean, the, the, the things I would say about that, that um, process of ethics by committee that I d- like didn't necessarily like, or think might be problematic are number one like i think th- these committee exercises can um uh sort of indulge in a kind of path dependency very quickly so like if you say well these are the topics we're going to address and these are the issues that we need to resolve and then people just say okay we're, we're, we're we've discarded everything else and now let's get down to kind of formulating guidelines on the this topic and that was something that i think happened with that committee relatively early on like it sort of came up with a set of topics that needed to be addressed pretty quickly. And then it was got down to the business of coming up with guidelines. You know, I suppose to some extent, I think maybe you should have a more like divergent brainstorming phase initially, where you maybe have a slightly broader perspective on things and then whittle it down. Um, and then, uh, you know, as with all these things, anyone who's ever served on any committee will know that 
personalities play a key part in you know how de debates or deliberations are, under, are undertaken some people are maybe more invested or involved in the committee work than others some people don't show up to the committees i mean that was one thing that i i found somewhat surprising about the um that committee without you know naming names it, it, you know i i think i showed up to every meeting some people had a slightly more laissez-faire attitude towards whether they needed to be there on a regular basis or not which at least to me it was surprising because I, I in some sense i thought it was both uh a kind of privilege to be selected and if I was selected I needed to do that job well and participate reasonably well not that I always discharged my my duties in that respect perfectly but other people certainly had a more kind of lax attitude towards it that, than um, I would have expected so yeah I mean the other thing is obviously you're working against a deadline and you have to produce something by a certain deadline and so you know inevitably you can run up against the limit of time so you you formulate principles that um maybe you you wanted more time to reflect on them or develop them and and then like the, the final point i will make which is true for anyone who's involved in any kind of public policy making is that it it's often the case that there's a sort of sense of futility around doing that in that you're not clear that those guidelines or recommendations will ever be read by anyone or ever taken up by anyone i think you know the eu high level expert group did actually have a fairly significant impact and influence on how AI policy and regulation developed in Europe. I don't think the committee that I was on has had any such influence, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there seems to be a range. I mean, I, I, my impression is that this uh, German committee on the ethics of self-driving cars maybe had had some influence and may, perhaps, uh, as definitely as you say, the high-level expert group does seem to have had some some influence and but then of course there's also discussion about okay so we have these uh guidelines that are that the committee comes up with that are usually compromised between different perspectives meaning that they're going to be fairly uh broadly formulated this is a good way of getting people to agree on ethical ideas and by making things fairly general so some of the discussion in, in sort of uh, uh following up on these uh, guidelines has been like okay well how can one or can one at all make it more concrete and how does one uh, turn the theory into practice so to speak and so some people think that yeah it can be done and they're the high level expert group i, I think actually did some follow-up work trying to operationalize the ideas and making recommendations about how to put this into practice whereas others have argued that no they what they come up with i mean not them in particular but a lot of these committees are sort of toothless as some critics put it principles that every, everyone can agree with but it's also hard to disagree with them and that also usually means that they are not giving very concrete guidance and then uh, so this is one of the uh, criticisms uh, in addition to this worries about industry uh, capture and ethics washing etc another has been like you know people they, they just come up with compromises that uh, are somewhat bland sometimes and that are not giving much guidance yeah actually to be fair that was that was one thing that that committee that i was on did reflect on a lot and discuss a lot that kind of translation problem you there were by the time we were doing our work there had been innumerable committees developing principles on ethical ai somebody at the time i think had calculated that there were other, over 50 such you know sets of principles out there in the world already by different groups and so the question was like how you would actually translate those into specific guidance on the design of autonomous vehicles and i think i think we did a reasonably good job of making it specific 
certainly in certain aspects of that report. I think particularly the first section on kind of harm and risk was actually pretty concrete. I mean, it's not like programming principles or how you'd actually program this into a, a vehicle or anything like that, but um, it was fairly precise in terms of what you should do. So we took a stance on things that maybe you wouldn't have expected a committee like that to take a stance on. But, you know, we need to talk about maybe some other methods, and we're not going to necessarily discuss these in a huge amount of detail. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about, I mean, two things, I suppose, that are more within the traditional wheelhouse of ethics and applied ethics. One is just to to engage in thought experiments and reasoning by analogy, which, I, I mean, this is maybe perhaps your entry point to this debate, if I recall correctly. And I believe we did an in, a whole interview on this topic once upon a time when we discussed a paper you just you wrote on the analogy between what a, the kinds of dilemmas that a self-driving car faces and the classic, timeless, you know, widely known thought experiment of the trolley problem. So maybe you could discuss that sort of method, that, that ethics by analogy, as you call it. Yeah, I mean, what I mean by ethics of analogy is indeed looking around at uh, previous philosophical discussions and seeing. So if you have a new ethical problem or seemingly new ethical problems, such as, for example, how should self-driving cars behave in risky scenarios, then one thing you can do is to ask, well, has anyone in philosophy or have lots of people perhaps in philosophy discussed something similar? And if so, have they been saying things that could be helpful that could be carried over to this new uh, topic and indeed a lot of people thought that well actually this is kind of a real life trolley problem uh, the trolley problem being well people disagree about what exactly is meant by the trolley problem but usually it's associated with some thought experiments involving a runaway trolley that's about to hit five people and then in one variation uh, you can redirect the trolley onto a sidetrack sadly there's one person there who will be hit by the trolley but the five uh, on the tracks uh, that uh, you know, the trolley was heading towards, they will be saved. A lot of people say, okay, you, sh you should do it re regrettably, uh, letting one person die, right? even regrettably, uh, in a certain sense, actually killing them because you know, you're redirecting the uh, the trolley onto that track. The other main variation that people discuss, and then there comes the whole set of uh, cases, uh, variations, is that you have to actually push someone in front of the, the train to in, in order to set off the automatic brakes, but then that person would die by the impact of the train. Here, a lot of people say, no, you shouldn't save the five by killing the one. Uh, so, so people seem to have different intuitions. And then uh, philosophers such as Francis Cam and others have all sorts of clever and interesting variations, teasing out differences in people's attitudes between different cases. And the trolley problem sometimes refers to the attempt to explain why our intuitions differ when you change small details in these uh, ex thought experiments. So there's a huge literature, both from philosophy and psychology on this. Uh, the philosophy literature came first, and then psychologists uh, interested in philosophy kind of got in on the, on the action, so to speak. But a lot of people said, okay, uh, self-driving cars could face scenarios where there are five people in front of the self-driving car, They're, the brakes are not working, and so either the self-driving car keeps going straight ahead and then, you know, ramps into these five people or maybe it can be programmed to go off in some other direction in, in those kinds of scenarios but what if there's one person there uh, or what if there's one person in the car and there's a brick wall and they would die and, and so on and so forth so it's it's quite easy to come up with thought experiments that look like the sort of the self-driving cars version of a trolley type of scenario of the, of the sort that's discussed in within the philosophy of the trolley problem i mean so as you said 
Uh, I mean, that, that paper, the, the moral machine experiment, I think maybe came out in 2017, but to, in 2015, uh, an earlier pro, uh, paper by the same project, the, the moral machine project, that was called the social dilemma of self-driving cars, if I remember correctly, uh, was, it was just about this issue, like, do we want cars that save as many people as possible, or do people want cars that save whoever's in the car? And then it turned out that people's attitudes towards that issue depended a little bit on whether they saw themselves as being in the car or whether they saw themselves as or other people as being in the car and, and them as being among the people who could possibly be hit and killed by a self-driving car outside of it. And so, yeah, my entry into this whole thing was to just ask, well, how good is the analogy here? I mean, should to what extent should we... And to what extent should we not be drawing on uh, something like the philosophy of the trolley problem when approaching a new topic like the ethics of self-driving cars? Yeah, I mean, I just want to maybe quickly note, am I correct in saying that Philippa Foote was the person who originally came up with the trolley yeah. problem or the formulation of the thought experiments? That's right. So she was the first and then uh, Judith uh, Thompson uh, came up with the sort of the uh, maybe the most iconic version of the trolley uh, problem uh, cases. Mm. Uh, but then others, again, I, I, mean, I mentioned Francis Cam just because she has a whole book about this called The Trolley Mysteries, but lots of people, I mean, they are not the only ones, but uh, uh, definitely Foote, Thompson and, and Cam have been three of the most influential people working on this. Yeah, and I mean, like, I, I just want to maybe have a couple of meta reflections on that, which is, number one, that the some extent this this idea of reasoning from thought experiments has become the dominant method in applied ethics right or and normative and applied ethics to some extent and i mean i, I, I derek parfit is possibly maybe the most famous exponent of, of this sort of perspective a very kind of close analysis of different thought experiments and the belief that this can help you to arrive at kind of ethical truths or uh, true beliefs about the the correct normative principles. I mean, lots of other people who are, who are doing the same thing. Um, and but the, the other thing is that, like, it, what's interesting to me in in what Foot and Thompson did initially was that, and they probably weren't aware of it. But they they essentially generated their own entire like productive research paradigm. I mean, some people would argue that it isn't particularly productive and it's misleading in various misleading in various, but it's generated a huge literature in philosophy about like refining the thought experiments and figuring out what we can actually learn from the analysis of them. But then also, as you say, in, in psychology about working out the nature of human moral judgment. Now, I like, I know you have your own view on the value of the analogy and you can maybe discuss that in a moment, but one thing that always occurred to me with the analogy between trolleyology and the trolley problem and what, we face with self-driving cars is that as I originally encountered it, the trolley problem was not an attempt to resolve what we ought to do in a particular scenario, but is rather like a puzzle about normative principles or theories and maybe inconsistencies in our beliefs and how we can work out those inconsistencies. Maybe it does have some sort of practical import and significance. Maybe some people will really think about it in terms of what we ought to do in certain scenarios, but like very clearly there's, the scenarios are contrived and, as with most philosophical thought experiments, very far removed from any kind of realistic dilemma you might face. And if you do these thought experiments with students, in my experience at least, a lot of them will point out, well, you know, the the fat man, or you're not allowed to say fat man anymore, whatever, whatever you're allowed to say, is not going to stop the 
trolley, you know, he's not going to prevent it from colliding into all these people. How does, how does that even work? Uh, how do you know that this is actually going to save them? And all, they, they will raise all these questions that arise in reality. But, you know, I, I guess a, a purist about the original rationale for them could say, well, that's not really the point. The, the point is we wanted these very abstract scenarios to kind of test the limits of our normative principles or figure out what, what they really entail and how they fit together. I don't know if you have any you know, thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so this was actually uh, one of my uh, main points that I was trying to make with my co-author, Ayla uh, Smith, about this, that, I mean, definitely it's super interesting to compare the trolley problem discussion with, the, you know, the ethics of self-driving cars. But a lot of, as you say, a lot of that discussion wasn't exactly about how people should act, but rather how to think about certain patterns in people's intuitions about this and trying to get clear you know, on why people seem to have conflicting intuitions. So it's more of a sort of theoretical puzzle that, you know, down the line may end up having some sort of practical importance, but that wasn't uh, maybe, I mean, okay, so some, maybe perhaps the first paper by Philippa Foote was about, uh, I think partly about abortion, actually. But uh, yeah, so uh, there's no guarantee that the questions that they were trying to answer by, when they were writing about the trolley problem were questions that are sort of, uh, the sort of things that when people want ethics guidelines for self-driving cars, I mean, they they want concrete guidance. And so if you go to a discussion that was about, you know, sort of almost like an introspective reflection on why people's uh, moral judgments uh, seeming seemingly on the surface conflict in certain ways and where there seems to be some underlying principle. Uh, of course, then you could, if once you found that principle, maybe you could apply that back to the self ethical, ethic, um, the ethics of self-driving cars. And actually, Jeff Keeling uh, wrote a really good paper about this, where he argued that yes, that's that's the whole point of these kinds of thought experiments to kind of unearth deeper moral principles, and then you could ask for something like the ethics of self-driving cars. Could we then apply those principles? And I mean, to, to me, I never, I was never sort of against making this comparison. My own point was just. Uh, you know, we shouldn't exaggerate the similarity between these two questions. And also we should be uh, mindful of the fact that the questions that people like Cam and others maybe were interested in were slightly different than the questions that some people approaching the ethics of self-driving cars are interested in. Uh, so we can learn uh, about, maybe we can maybe even learn about the trophy problem by thinking about self-driving cars. And we can learn about self-driving cars by looking at the trolley problem. But there usually has to be some sort of middle step where one explains why exactly is this important. I mean, you mentioned Derek Parfit and how he has used this kind of looking at thought experiments methodology. And another thing that I have done uh, in my previous work was to just look at what kind of criticisms have people like Derek Parfit and Francis Cam uh, faced when they have done this kind of method uh, of looking at cases and trolley problem scenarios. And uh, some of those criticisms to them seemed to me to apply to the comparison or the idea that the ethics of self-driving car was a kind of trolley problem, uh, you know, in, in real life. Uh, things such as, well, what about responsibility? As you say, a clever student would typically say, well, how can we be sure that this, the, you know, the, the fine will really be saved? Another clever student will usually say, how can we be sure that we're not going to go to jail and be held responsible if, you know, if we push someone in front of a trolley or even if we redirect a train? And then you know, we as teachers usually say, well, it's just a thought experiment. Forget about responsibility. Uh, but then one of the points that I, I raised together with Ayla uh, Smith was, well, when it comes to something like self-driving car, well, this is what the other main question 
about that topic. I mean, how should we think about responsibility? So uh, some of the things that we can sort of set aside when we think about a thought experiment like the trolley problem and, and the cases associated with that are going to be some of the most important things that we should not set aside when we think about something like a real world technology that, that's about to be introduced. I mean, in this case, it wasn't really introduced in society. There have been more and more automation in cars, but we're not yet at a point where we have any fully self-driving cars of the sort that were, that were imagined in the earlier discussions uh, and envisioned as being within you know a reality within about five or six years hasn't happened yet perhaps it's yet to happen but uh, uh anyway so yeah that's uh i did write recently a kind of sequel where i sort of tried to come up with a surprise twist but i argued that actually it is very relevant to compare the trolley problem to the ethics of self-driving car cars if not I mean, it may be directly relevant. Jeff Keeling has argued convincingly that it is, but it might even at least be indirectly relevant because by pointing out relevant differences between the real-world ethics of self-driving cars and the sort of philosophy of uh, you know the trolley problem, in pointing out those differences, we knew we can thereby kind of generate a, a list of things that seem to be important when we think about the reality of of, of, you know, of self-driving cars in traffic, you know with human beings there whose lives are at risk. And so at least it's going to be indirectly important to think about the analogy. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think that seems fair enough. And it would be remiss of me not to mention, given my legal background, that this sort of applied reasoning from cases is actually essentially what happens in a lot of law, like maybe specifically or particularly in the common law tradition, um, where you reason by analogy with preceding cases and in famous judgments, you can find judges like essentially posing the equivalent of philosophical thought experiments to work out what the legal principle or rationale should be or how the principle should apply in this particular case. Um, and so that's sort of a real world example of how this reasoning by analogy and from thought experiment can have practical significance. And this also applies to some extent to questions around liability and wrongdoing in dilemma type situations which could be relevant to self-driving cars um i, I mean I, I do want to ask you just quickly on the experiments so, so the moral machine experiment which attracted a lot of attention notoriety maybe infamy um a lot of backlash against it do you think that the empirical work like the psychological work adds anything to it i mean i, I don't know if I can parse the criticisms of the moral machine experiment, maybe they're sort of similar to the, the criticisms that you raise of the analogy in the first place, but uh, you know, a couple of things to say about the moral machine experiment. If you're not familiar with it, you can, I think you probably still go online and do it if you want to. Yes, but It cool. essentially poses lots of variants on trolley like dilemmas with self-driving cars where you're either the passenger or you're not the passenger where you can collide with an animal or a group of children or an old person or a young a young adult or something like this. I can't, I can't remember all the different variations that they pose, but it's sort of, I mean, classic utilitarian themes, like are are, are young people worth more than, I'm sure, I don't know why I'm laughing. I shouldn't do that. Um, are young people worth more than old people? Are animals worth less than humans? That, that kind of thinking that go, goes into it. And in some ways it's a very impressive experiment because it has just like a huge number of people who did it. I mean, there's a little bit of a, western bias perhaps in the demographics of it or there were when it was originally reported but 
I think at the time it was the largest experiment ever performed in that it had over a million people who did it, uh, which I think was the largest sample size or, you know, cohort for an experiment ever recorded at, the, at that time. So it, it is an impressive database of information or knowledge on, on people's judgment in these types of cases. But the criticism is that, as I read it, is that, well, number one, these, these thought experiments are not particularly helpful when it comes to developing policy for self-driving cars. They're artificial, and they kind of narrow the frame of the debate in a misleading way. We shouldn't even really be thinking in terms of these kinds of dilemmas. We should be thinking larger questions about whether we want self-driving cars in the first place, how we should manage traffic, you know, how we should manage social environments or design social environments to maybe avoid these sorts of dilemmas arising in the first place. The the experiments are sort of biased by a particular tradition in normative ethics, perhaps like a utilitarian versus deontological ethics and biased to non-Western perspectives or something like that. So like there's a whole range of criticisms that emerged of that experiment, but I don't know if you have an opinion or thought on it. Uh, yeah, I do. I, mean, I just will also just mention that some people have criticized these uh, vignettes that as being sort of frivolous and not taking seriously enough the, you know, the, the reality of people being hit by and killed by cars. Because I mean, they're, they're, uh, there's some of those vignettes are kind of comical. There are three cats on one side and like two dogs on the other. And you know, they're like cartoons and then you're supposed to kind of choose, you know, who's going to die. And there's like a little uh, a skull there, like, you know, or something like that, you know, indicating who's de- dies. And so some people have, like, argue that this is just sort of somehow disrespectful towards human life and human dignity. That's one kind of criticism. I mean, I guess I, I agree to some extent with that. I mean, it's, some of them are ridiculous and, you know, you, my main criticism of that is that you know when people see this uh, you know you get into kind of a you know I mean I did this recently with a, a bunch of students I, I as you said you can still go to the uh, more machine website and run through the experiment people start laughing because the the, the, car, the cartoon images are funny and people get into kind of a you know the mindset where they're not maybe thinking about the ethics but they're clicking and they're having fun and you know, that doesn't seem to represent the kind of mindset that maybe you want to have when you think about life and death and how to, you know, how, how dangerous technology should operate in society. Uh, and I mean, I should maybe mention at the, at the very end, if you do the experiment, that you get kind of a personality analysis at the end. Uh, you know, you seem to be the kind of person who really cares about whether people are crossing the street when there's a red light or, you know, or jaywalking or things like that. Or, you know, you seem to be the kind of person who really care about uh, you know, young people as opposed to old people or, or vice versa, etc. So you, you get kind of an analysis and, and the class of students with, with which I, I did this, they all enjoyed that. And they're like, yeah, OK, we made these judgments. And so it becomes like a kind of almost like a party trick or something like that. So so one criticism is that it doesn't take the issue seriously enough. I mean, and I'd like to be yeah. clear, I mean, from a empirical psychological perspective, that could also then seriously contaminate or bias the results of the experiment if people are treating it frivolous, frivolously or as a game or in some sense like that. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, so that's that's one thing that could maybe indicate that uh, even though the idea might be good of, of seeking people's intuitions and trying to get an idea of people's attitudes, perhaps the method of doing it with these funny pictures is not the best way of doing it. That's one criticism. Another criticism, which I think is interesting, is sort of inspired by something called the Collinridge dilemma. I mean, it's very, I mean, very loosely inspired. The idea of the Collinridge dilemma is that 
before we have a certain technology in society, we don't really know what the problems are. Uh, so we, we maybe have more control over whether or not we introduce technology because it's not there yet. We could maybe ban it or whatever, uh, but we don't really know what's going to happen with it once it does in society. But once we do know because it's there, it can be very hard to control the technology. Everyone now has a smartphone. Everyone now uses ChatGPT, whatever it might be. And so we have less control, but we start learning about what the problems are. And I, I had a similar sort of thought about the moral machine experiment. Like if people don't, uh, didn't, uh, certainly back, no, not when it started, but still not, we, we don't have a lot of experience with the sort of out of control self-driving cars. And so we don't know what it's like to have uh, you know, so-called level five self-driving cars out in traffic. And so our attitudes are very hypothetical. They're not based on sort of, you know, learning from experience and really getting an idea what it's like. Uh, and, and it's quite likely uh, that maybe some of the, attitudes that we have in response to these vignettes, perhaps they would alter and change in the future when we really do have the technologies. I mean, actually, this is something that you argue in some of your work, that new technology can change people's attitudes. And I mean, you even argue that it should perhaps, under certain circumstances, change people's attitudes. So is is someone like you are right? I mean, that once we have new technologies in society, that may change our, our attitudes as a matter of fact. And perhaps... I mean, as you say, perhaps it even should change our attitudes. If, if either or both of those claims are right, and we're now making judgments about a technology that we don't yet have, you know, we have to think about the fact that, well, actually, once we have more experience with that technology, perhaps our attitudes will change. You might even say they should change. I, I don't know. But uh, so that's that's another issue I have with this, uh, uh, you know, the moral machine experiment that, it's uh, asking people about something that they don't really have a good understanding of, that they don't have a lot of experience with, and where their attitudes are likely to at least to some extent change once they have more experience. And so, uh, yeah, it seems that maybe we're asking them at the wrong time. On the other hand, as, as Conrich and others have been arguing about, now's a good time to ask because now we can control it, but our attitudes may change. So there's a kind of a, a dilemma here in terms of, you know, it's nice to ask people their their view but maybe their view now isn't very well informed because they don't know what it's going to be like to have self-driving cars in society but once they have them their attitudes may have changed perhaps even for the worse perhaps for the better who knows so the timing issue is i think is also an interesting aspect of this yeah i mean so i think we should maybe sort of move towards towards wrapping up a discussion of this this chapter um, and this means, as is probably going to be inevitable in all of these episodes, that we will sort of skip quickly over maybe a significant topic. But like one of the things that you do reflect on in your book, which I think is interesting, is maybe the absence of what you might call like traditional normative ethics in this discussion. So, but, but like by traditional normative ethics, you might say, well, like I'm a utilitarian. I adopt, I know. Um, something like uh, Bentham's original formulation of the greatest happiness principle. And uh, this is what I think should happen with self-driving cars, or I'm a a Kantian. And I think this is what self-driving cars should do in these scenarios. I mean, there are more or less out there in the world, utilitarians and Kantians in in some more or less traditional sense, but they don't seem to be like writing explicit defenses of what we ought to do with self-driving cars. Maybe there's exceptions to that which you could comment on, but why is it that that traditional approach has been absent, do you think? 
I think actually maybe for two reasons. And so, I mean, the traditional approach is sometimes called applied ethics. And the idea is that there's a general ethical principle, for example, the principle of utility, the categorical imperative from Kant or whatever it might be. And then you take you, you take that general principle and you apply it to a specific case. For example, how should self-driving cars behave in risk scenarios? And then, you know, whatever is implied by the combination of some description of the circumstances and the general principle, that is your conclusion. And so you apply the general principle to the specific problem. Uh, one reason why that hasn't been done quite as much as maybe one would have expected is that there, I mean, there has been a little bit of a trend in applied ethics, well, in a practical ethics, as you may say, to think that we that's not a, that's in, in general not a good, good approach because we should instead work with something that people sometimes call mid-level principles. Uh, perhaps we should not even work with principles at all. We should work with values or we should do something else. And so there's a general skepticism, at, at least among some ethicists, about the, the method of applied ethics, so to speak, of applying general principles to specific uh, uh, cases. They say that the general principles are still good to think about, but they play a different role in ethical thinking. Maybe they describe general ideals, uh, visions of you know, how people should interact. But then when it comes to specific areas of life, we need uh, part of the other principles. I mean, even someone like Jeremy Bentham actually describes four sub-principles of utility, uh, something like equality, security, and then two more things that he thinks that if people follow those principles, that tends to promote you know, overall utility. So, uh, so there's this trend of trying to find more concrete principles that don't just apply the general principles directly, but have some sort of mid-step in between with what are sometimes called mid-level principles. So that might be one reason. Another might be that, uh, I mean, okay, so utilitarians, they might be very interested in you know, thinking about how to apply their principle to real world uh, scenarios. I mean, Jeremy Bentham would be an example of that uh, to some extent. But some philosophers, and I think perhaps this is particularly true of Kantian philosophers, just don't in general seem to be super interested in the ethics of technology. There are exceptions. There is some uh, recent paper from a German philosopher applying Kantian ethics to the, you know, the trolley problem type of issue related to self-driving cars. So there are exceptions, but it's definitely unusual. And so it might just be that perhaps utilitarians are more interested in sort of a, uh, you know, applying their view to real world cases whereas maybe some types of uh, ethical theory is more interested in like you know how can we it's not so much applied ethics more like you know what's what's an, a good ideal for how to relate to other people i mean i'm saying that i, I should also maybe uh, add that in other areas of uh, tech, uh, of ethics such as medical ethics maybe they have been more interest from kantians than but they just don't, don't seem to have been super interested in the ethics of self-driving cars uh I mean, you, yeah. not self-driving cars, but you did write a paper, which is sort of a, a Kantian explore, exploration of a Kantian perspective on an ethical issue to do with technology, which is child sex dolls or robots, right? But yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's partly just because, I mean, I wrote that together with uh, John Stuart Gordon, uh, who was the one who suggested the topic. And, and part of what he said was just like, well, there seems to be, you know, that just seems to be one method that people can use. I mean, what would Kant say about self-driving cars? What, what, what would Kant say about, uh, um, you know, sex robots? And one of the things that we found when we were trying to ask a somewhat odd question, you know, what would a Kant or a Kantian say about something as specific as the ethics of, uh, you know, uh, sex robots that are look like children? 
I mean, one of the things we found was that it's actually not very straightforward. Uh, first of all, because, uh, you know, Kant doesn't really talk about technology. Uh, second of all, because a lot of contemporary Kantians think that we should adopt the spirit of Kantian ethics when we think about sexual ethics. But what Kant himself says about sexual ethics, they find uh, a lot of the Kantians is outdated and they don't like that part of Kant's philosophy. Uh, I mean, I don't know how that would translate into the case of self-driving cars. I mean, has Kant, has he said anything about, I mean, he has a short essay about what is a book and how should we think about the ethics of books? Uh, I mean, I mean, a book is, I mean, this is a little bit like what we discussed last time, you know, is, you know, what things are technologies, what aren't. If you think that books are a kind of technology, you, I guess you could ask, what does Kant say about books? Could you sort of make an analogy between what he says about that and self-driving cars? Well, I guess, you know, you really would have to add a lot of additional steps and assumptions. And and so what we, uh, John Gordon and I did in that paper was we asked, you know, what would someone coming from a sort of loosely Kantian perspective say about this particular case? And we we presented some arguments, but uh, we, we did found that one had to kind of Go, you know, remove remove oneself from the Kantian text and think more about general ideas and add further principles. And at, at that point, you could come up with sort of a, a I don't know modern twist on the Kantian view that could be applied to this new issue. Yeah, I, I mean, you, I suppose you partly alluded to this in in what you just said, but um, it may be that there is a tension or a problem when it comes to the relationship between maybe traditional normative principles like utilitarianism and Kantianism and a dynamic, fast-moving field like innovation or te technological change. Uh, Shannon Valor, who wrote, has written lots of things in, on technology ethics, but a book a, a few years ago called Technology and the Virtues, I think is the title of it. Um, I have, I've interviewed her on the other podcast I did uh, on on the topic of this book, I also wrote a short piece about it. But like one of the ways that book starts is essentially arguing that utilitarians and Kantians have nothing useful to say about to, about ethics in a time of sort of accelerating technological change and development, partly to do with the sort of abstraction of their principles and their frameworks, and hence why we need something that's more grounded in human communities and practice. Hence, virtue ethics. I mean, I'm butchering the argument to some extent but that's roughly what she says so it's it's a to, to her a way of thinking at least normative ethics that sort of approach to applied ethics is just not a proper fit for the technological age we live in yeah i mean i get i, I can imagine that a lot of kantians would be fine with that they would say that yeah I mean, a lot of the kantian ethics stuff is about uh, interpersonal relationships how to you know should one ever deceive other people to, for, for the sake of utility etc and you know what's the proper way of uh, you know to, to interacting with people around us on a sort of person to person uh, type of level uh, it doesn't apply to to you know human technology interaction it applies to human human interaction i guess utilitarians would probably uh resist that claim uh, from a valor to, to a greater degree they might say that hey we've always been about policy making and actually uh, you know, Benton and Mill and some of the early utilitarians, that's where they started and that then sort of turning it into an interpersonal ethical theory sort of came later. I mean, Bentham, uh, like you, came from a legal background and was interested in social societal reform. And then he said, hey, well, this should this principle of utility should be about every single aspect of life, including, you know, how you relate to yourself, what kind of virtues you should and shouldn't have. So, so yeah, I, mean, I guess uh, they would probably have a bigger problem with uh, Valor's uh, claim than Kantians might have. Kantians might say, well, actually, okay, so Kantian ethics, 
fine. Maybe it doesn't apply to some of these issues. However, Kant had also developed a kind of political philosophy, uh, a little bit similar to what is today called sort of neo-Republican uh, political philosophy, uh, a version of that, I guess you could say. And then maybe you could argue that some of these issues about technology, some, I mean, some of them are, are ethical issues. Maybe other issues are more almost like political philosophy types of issues. And so maybe other parts of a theory such as Kantian ethics could, or you know, Kant's philosophy could work there. Uh, I mean, it might also be worth here mentioning, worth mentioning here that uh, the social contract tradition, uh, also coming out very much out of sort of political philosophy, later being turned into a form of ethical theory, that has also maybe to a greater extent been applied to the case of self-driving cars, because uh, the social contract tradition, you know, asks. Okay, so if people had to make decisions about what rules uh, to follow in some domain, uh, what kind of uh, principles would they agree on if they, for example, didn't know, you know what role they would have in society, or if they were trying to come up with rules that would be mutually advantageous, uh, good for everyone, that no one would have a, a complaint against. Uh, that sort of approach is typically about you know, what rules should we all follow and should we interact on the basis of, and that maybe that lends itself more to questions such as, okay, what rules should we apply to self-driving cars? And, and indeed, some people like Derek Levin and, and others have applied that type of contractual reasoning to the ethics of self-driving car cars, whereas Kantian's interested in, you know, what does it mean to treat humanity as an end in itself? Well, they haven't really asked, how should a self-driving car do that? You know, if, <laughs> because maybe they, for them, it seems a little bit further from what they're typically interested in. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't... I don't know if this is fair necessarily to the view of like a lot of people do critique applied technology ethics, which fixates on maybe particular technologies and their use cases, or you know, what should the self-driving car do? Does a robot of moral status? Those kinds of questions. There's a whole, I think, fairly substantial and that critical tradition in uh, ethics of technology that kind of disputes the value of those questions and the traditional philosophical approaches to them. I think one way of looking at what they're arguing for is actually they're favoring a sort of more political conception of technology ethics, that it should be more focused on what kind of society we want to build upon. Now, many of the people who are part of that tradition, I don't think would classify themselves as social contract theorists, but you could, I suppose you could see how that sort of social contract perspective might fit better with that politicized conception of technology ethics, that it's it's about deciding what kind of political society or governance structures we want to have as opposed to resolving specific dilemmas. All right, I mean, I think we've done a reasonable job here of kind of showing this diversity or plurality in methods, focusing on this case study. If you have any final thoughts on that, I'd be happy to hear them. Maybe we can wrap up by talking about some recommendations. Do you have any kind of things that people should read or look at if they want yeah, to get so further maybe, maybe, embroiled in this? Absolutely. Maybe the, the one thing I would like to add is uh, uh, you know, actually one of the criticisms of something like ethics by the ethics by committee approach has sometimes been that okay, so technologies uh, you know are are, are usually well, well like the internet or AI and things like that they have a kind of global impact. Uh, but if we uh, gather a bunch of let's say Western experts, then maybe uh, we ignore uh, non-Western perspectives and things like that. And actually, so on the one hand, there has been a call for more reflection on, you know, other traditions. But luckily, you might say, 
that call has also been answered to some extent. There are more and more philosophers who uh, ask, you know, what would not necessarily a Kantian or Kant say about self-driving cars or robots or whatever it might be, but, you know, what would Confucius say or like what would people coming uh, from a sort of Ubuntu uh, ethics tradition, I mean, that's something I discuss in, in the book, as I mentioned, that particular tradition, you could also ask about what about Indian philosophy, what about uh, uh, Latin American philosophy, etc. So there are people who also do that today. They look at other traditions and ask, you know, okay, so maybe adopting that kind of thinking, you know, what what would we say about technology ethics? Uh, I mean, one thing I would say about that maybe is that that I mean, I, I find that super interesting, but it's also the sort of thing that maybe works less well when you think about some technology issues, such as you know, how should a self-driving car behave in traffic in risky scenarios? Uh, I mean. If something like Ubuntu philosophies, for example, is about interpersonal relationships and this idea that you know we become persons through other persons, and uh, our one of our most important ethical duties is to try to you know, develop certain excellences and so, uh, attitude of solidarity towards other people, there too it might be slightly unclear how we do, you would apply that to the question of you know what a self-driving car should do in a kind of dilemma scenario. It may be much more applicable to other kinds of issues such as for example should we ever build robots that look and behave like humans then uh, there could be lots of really interesting insights coming out of that particular tradition so i mean it's not just to say that you know there's certain traditions that are a better fit or others than when it comes to technology ethics but it, it, that's another method that we shouldn't uh you know forget and that people are increasingly using i mean some, some people call it intercultural philosophy others just talk about you know okay what uh, you know how, how should one think about this coming from a I don't know, confusion point of view, Ubuntu point of view, or what this or that point of view. So that's just another thing that we didn't mention. I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, some of those committees have been accused of being maybe too Western-centric, but uh, implied by that is also this further idea, okay, let's also look at other traditions. And I mean, maybe one more comment. I mean, again, just to reiterate, I personally think that we should take a kind of pluralistic approach uh, so some people have said that, yeah, there are, there are big problems with the idea of comparing, for example, self-driving cars with the trolley problem. Uh, there are big problems with the moral machine type of experiment, you know, using empirical ethics. And I mean, I would agree that there are problems, but that doesn't mean that there aren't also, you know, insights that to be had from these approaches and that there aren't really interesting, uh, you know, findings from the empirical uh, studies, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think we should just sort of take on a kind of pluralistic approach and ask, you know, and we can also think in terms of a division of labor. Maybe maybe you like empirical ethics, maybe I don't, but why don't you do, go and do some empirical ethics while I go and think about what Kant would say about self-driving cars. And then we can sort of report back to each other and learn from each other and rather than saying like, okay, no one should run, you know, these kind of more machine experiments. Everyone else, everyone should just think about what Rawls would say or what this uh, that tradition would say. I say, you know, let's, let's divide... The, the labor among us and let's come up with views about this and then maybe co contrast and compare so that that's uh, something i would add uh, in addition yeah i suppose then just finally in terms of of recommendations um maybe i i can start again uh just offer one recommendation on this occasion and this may be a, a case of me being influenced by the most recent thing that i happen to have read on this topic but i thought uh, Peter Koenigs is a philosopher that I I know, but I, I don't know actually where he's based. He's uh, German himself, but it, I don't know what university he's based with actually. 
but you might know. Uh, he wrote a paper called Of Trolleys and Self-Driving Cars, What Machine Ethicists Can and Cannot Learn from Trolleyology. It was just published in the journal Utilitas, which is a, mainly a journal dedicated to exploring issues around utilitarian philosophy. But uh, don't let that kind of bias your interpretation of this article, because it's not necessarily about that. It's It's more of a methodological reflection on the value of these thought experiments. I don't necessarily agree with his outlook or perspective. He, he has a sort of pessimistic view of what we can learn from these thought experiments. But I think it's an interesting discussion of the methodological nature and limits of some sorts of applied ethics. Yeah, I, 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 well, I know Peter Koenigs, and I think that's a great paper. I would also recommend it. Uh, I think that at the very moment he's based at Utrecht University, my a previous institution i think it may be maybe moving but uh maybe i should say too much about that uh i i think that's uh, uh well well you can have him on and ask him what his future plans are uh that's a great paper uh i mean just in terms of criticisms of the moral machine experiment there is a paper that's called the immoral machine by john harris it's somewhat intemperate i must say uh but i really enjoy that uh, very strong criticism of the moral machine ex experiment. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm also a fan of the moral machine. I think that's a very interesting uh, set of uh, experiments that they they did have interesting findings. And so um, I might have criticized myself, but I would certainly recommend reading some of those. Uh, I think one paper is called The Moral Machine. Uh, and the other one, as I said before, I think it's all something like the social dilemma of self-driving cars. I may be, be getting that wrong. Uh, those are worth looking at. Um, I mean, when it comes to methodolog methodological reflections uh, in technology ethics and ethics more generally, I mean, I think that is, you know, that, that there aren't so many uh, great uh, you know, tips one can give, like, but people do think about this, but they don't often write about it. And so, uh, I mean, this is part of why I thought I should devote one chapter of the book to actually saying, okay, let's reflect on methods and methodology. And then it just happened to be the case that one of the things I'd written about before, the ethics of self-driving cars, just has this range of methods. And so it wasn't so hard to write that kind of chapter just because there was it was easy to say, well, people have done this, they've done that, they've done this third thing. So, uh, yeah, I, The Immoral Machine by John Harris is a kind of an, an interesting and very uh, passionate response to the, the Moral Machine experiment. Yeah, and you know, most of Harris's stuff is fairly direct, I would put it that way. Yes. Um, okay, uh, let's leave it at that, so, and we'll we'll pick up the thread the next time around, talking about something which is very much in the news as we speak, which is the control and alignment problems for AI, right? So I look forward to that. Sounds good. Thanks a lot.